You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Toonstar, an animation tech startup that produces snackable, interactive content for mobile audiences. To learn more, visit Toonstar.com or download the Toonstar app. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Bob Mazaloski, Managing Director of Techstars Music. Bob, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited we get to do this. I, I think this might be my first ever podcast wow, interview. Yeah. Especially for a music guy. What do you think? I'm into it. Uh-huh. I'm into it. I like the pantyhose on the microphone. <laughs> I'm. Uh, this is great. Let's do it. Perfect. Do you listen to any podcasts? I listen to a bunch. I have a, well, I'm about to out myself, I guess. I am a closet Rappaport fan. My son's really into basketball, and he's gotten me into the culture of basketball. So I like watching college hoops, and I, I went to Kansas, so it's kind of part of the deal. But he's gotten me really into the culture of the NBA. I don't really have a team. I don't follow, I don't want to watch NBA games. I just want to follow the players. Yeah. And I think that's, so I'm fascinated by that. So I've been listening to a bunch of NBA podcasts that are about basketball strategy and the players, not about what happened in the games. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. What's your take on LeBron's investment in Undefeated? Look, I think what that guy's doing right now is on par, and this is going to sound hyperbolic, and I'm, but I mean it this way. I think he's on par with what Muhammad Ali did in the 70s. I think LeBron has a real platform to be one of the most important people in American culture ever. And, you know... On the basketball court, I think he takes up all the oxygen for his teammates. Like, I'm not sure he would be my first pick on the basketball court if I was building a team. But from a cultural perspective, I think what he's doing is amazing and awesome. And, like, I can't speak more highly of what I think he's doing. I think it's, incre- cool. I think it's incredible. So let's start by talking a bit about how you got your start in the music space. Oh, man. Uh, well, I've never worked in music. Like, it's a, people, you know, they're always like, well, give me some advice on a career in music. And I'm like, well, don't talk to me about that. I've only ever worked in tech. I worked for Yahoo. I worked for a startup called Topspin. I worked for Twitter. And now I work for Techstars, right? So that all of that is on the technology side. All of it has been technology related as it relates to music and, con- and consuming music and marketing it and talking to artists. Yeah, I can't, I'm not in any position to give anybody advice about how to make content or be on the creative side of the business. Sure. In fact, if I like your band, you're in trouble. <laughs> My tastes are... Like the in like I have the reverse uh, like people say oh that guy's golden ears like he can hear hit songs yeah I have the opposite like things I like are destined for like niche nerd audiences sure not. so what are some of the things that you listen to. I'm into a lot of things in a really weird way. I'm super into roots and dub reggae. I'm really into like American punk rock, both New York and East Coast, like New York, East Coast particularly, New York and DC, but also like Southern California stuff. I like that a lot. I like country music, like classic country music. Um, On the way to work today, I was listening to Red Sovine, which is like the, I can't believe I just admitted that. Like that's like some like 50s country stuff. I'm really into the entire Migos family tree at the moment. Like I'm excited for the Quavo solo record. Like my tastes are, like I said, like I'm, All the place it's, a, it's a mess. Yeah. yeah. Like it's a genuine mess. <laughs> and I get in these long uh, ruts where like I have to like, okay, nothing sounds good. There's no new music I like. Yeah, and so I'm just I'll, I'll just be listening to Sam Cooke and Lee Perry for like weeks on end and then I'll be off listening to you know some crazy metal band or whatever uh, there's a new band that I will plug that I think is cool it's called Nothing 
which is sort of the, if you liked shoegaze records, if you were into My Bloody Valentine, or there was a band out of the middle of the country called Hum in like the early middle 90s, just big, like anthemic sounding riffs with like shoegazy melodic lyrics. That band, Nothing record came out, I don't know, maybe a month and a half ago, something like that. It's great. Right on. Yeah. What attracted you to tech? Well, when I was a kid, so I was, I've always been a, like a, a obsessive fan of music. And I've always had access to technology because my dad worked for the Department of Agriculture. He was the uh, worked for the office of the chief information officer and built I, like some of the earliest and biggest IP telephony networks, Forest Service, Department of Agriculture, like making government offices work together. So when we were kids, he bought a port of the world's first portable computer. We had a Kpro 64, which if you Google was pretty entertaining. 64K hard drive. Dual disc floppies, like the big ones, five and a half. It's like a metal box and it folded up like into like a briefcase that weighed like a hundred pounds. Like it was not portable, but it was technically portable because you could fold it together. So I was the first kid growing up in my town to have a computer. Like people used to come to our house to see the computer. Like, why do you have a computer? And then I never really connected the two. I collected music. I had a setup. I always liked, loved messing around on the internet. And it's kind of a, a, not a super well-known story. Like I'm just a guy, right? But like, there's another guy named Brad Barish who worked with us at Topspin, who works now at Sonos. We met in college at uh, University of Kansas and built a website, like fully licensed, listen to streaming music while you read record reviews. I wrote the record reviews. Brad knew Macromedia director at the time for anybody who's super old and messing around with the internet. And so the idea would be you would, you would read the review and you would listen to the album at the same time. And we had deals with five of the then seven major labels and we got a B on it. 1996. Like, had we been students at Stanford or even UCLA, we probably would have been able to raise several million dollars worth of venture capital and turn those deals, which we got from the PR departments, by the way, not the licensing departments, probably could have turned that into a really interesting business in the first sort of web era, right? Late 90s. Instead, we got a B and went and got jobs out of school. <laughs> so that's kind of how it started. But like, yeah. none of it was ever professional. It was all just like passionate about this is the stuff you care about and things you love. Sure. So after school, how did you cross into the professional realm and decide, well, I want to make a career in technology and the intersection so of music? I got a job originally working for a newspaper, of all things. And then I left that and worked for like a convention publishing company for five years. And that was like producing media and websites and printed products and all sorts of stuff for conventions all over the world. And I did that for five years and I bought a house and I was just like, you know, stereotypical Midwestern like dude with a job. And I was kind of miserable. Still doing like internet and, and local rock and roll and independent rock stuff on the side. It's a hobby, still collecting, whatever. And then I started helping a band in the town that I lived in. I lived in Kansas City at the time. I was helping a band there and got really deep into the local music scene and realized that like I was as good at the strategy and the business of that as anybody that I'd met who did it for a living. And so I went to grad school in Pittsburgh and studied like entertainment industry management. Like I went and looked up like how do the economics of this work and how does, how does that happen? And part of that was coming to LA to do like an internship or like a fellowships, kind of like write your master's thesis inside the offices of a major television studio or a movie studio. And so I worked with Paula Wagner and Tom Cruise while they were setting up United Artists around the time they made the films Valkyrie and Lions for Lambs. And it was super cool. It was one of those great experiences in your life where you get to see something super close up and look at it and learn all about it and get all the information and details and go, this is not even remotely for me. 
Like, nope. Like, there's a thousand people who would murder to sit in the chair I'm sitting in, and I can't wait to get out of here. Like, this is not it. It was really great. And I give Paula tons of credit for being willing to, like, let me have that experience because it put me on the path of, like, okay, I want to mess around with music on the internet. And I, during that time, through a friend, got introduced to Ian Rogers, who was working at Yahoo. And I became Ian's intern. Ian and uh, Michael Spiegelman, who now runs product for Netflix, they took a shot on me as a, and Dave Goldberg too, um, rest in peace, Dave G, chokes me up even thinking about it. They let me be their intern at 32 years old. Changed my whole like career trajectory. That's incredible. So what were the things that you were focused on during the time of Yahoo? As soon as I got there, it was the first question they asked me was, should we buy MySpace? You know how MySpace works. You're making money for bands using MySpace. How does it work? I was like, immediately I was thrown into like the highest, most interesting strategy part. We're gonna make, design a competing product. How does it work on the Yahoo homepage? How does it work at Yahoo Music? Which at the time was like 25 million monthly uniques. It was the number one site in Comscore for music category. It was a very real thing for Yahoo to consider buying MySpace. Like it went to News Corp, right? sure. but it could have been a, a, a totally doable deal at that and moment. And Yahoo Music grew out of the launch acquisition, right? That's right. So that's why, that's why Dave, right? So yeah. Dave was, Dave, um, and so I got there and interned for about a year. And then when Dave and Bob left and sort of gave Ian the keys and Michael became a sort of in running the product side, I was literally fell out of my internship into a senior product manager job. And my job was to do this stuff on the site and get blog content. And I was in charge of music information at Yahoo. Wow. It was a crazy moment. So what was your take, going back to the MySpace thing, yeah. Uh, yeah, what was your take on MySpace at that time? Because it had totally captured the cultural zeitgeist. It was mm -hmm. a premier destination for bands to get their music out there. It was the first ever canonical URL for music. And some people could argue, like you could make a pretty good argument right now today that because there isn't sort of a public Spotify or Apple Music canonical URL, like there still isn't really like the one page where you know you can find out what's up with the band, where are they from, when's the next tour date, hear two songs, see a video, look at pictures, like get a sense for like what's the relative size and importance of this band. That was amazing. Tons of other product problems and, and other stuff that was an issue for MySpace, right? So like that conversation is a much different thing. But in that moment, it was the first time ever that there had been that really direct-to-consumer, direct-to-fan interaction relationship and there was real commerce being done. I mean, I had bands that had, you know, several thousand friends connected to them and, and used the MySpace parlance who could use that to book shows and sell t-shirts and make money. Like it wasn't, you know, just for likes and friends. And at the time, doing merch sales, driving ticket sales, that was a big part of monetization for artists because the internet had come along and wiped out, you know, physical distribution. That was a big, that was a big part of the thesis of Topspin, right? So in the moment where Microsoft's buying Yahoo, you know, Shamal uh, Ranasinghe, who now runs artist product for Pandora, he splits off and teams up with Peter Gocher from Pro Tools and they found Topspin. They recruit me and Ian to come and join and be part of the team. That holds the whole thing. Like artists are going to need to be able to run their direct-to-consumer businesses and they need tools and a platform to do that. And that was, that was Topspin. And that five years of that company were like built every network, you know, built my entire network of music, taught me everything I know about interacting with fans. We made a ton of mistakes. There was a bunch of things that we did right that were great that people still emulate and copy today. And there was a bunch of things where we totally blew it. What's one of those mistakes? What's the biggest thing that you took away from that experience? Like totally blew it? Sure. So I can remember there was an argument in the office one day and the argument was, should we have a public facing brand or not? Should this be a white label tool for artists to use or should we have sort of our own destination where we aggregate all the shops together and we generate traffic and bring people together, right? And there was a couple of people, including Shamal, who were like, let's have a destination. Let's like, let's 
create our own traffic and our own demand and generate demand for these products. And Ian and I were like, no, because we have all these elite artists who really want to use the product and we have, we are lucky enough to have these relationships and their trust. We should make it white label and let them allow them to create and customize their own incredible experiences for their audiences. We'll make a lot more money on the commission side of that. And we were like, Ian and I, we won the argument and did that with the business, but we were wrong. Like we should have done it the other way around. So now fast forward to today, you think about music destinations like Apple Music, like Spotify. Do you think that they have taken more of that approach and taken some of those learnings? I think all the current, no dissing the current streaming services, good products. I think they're all 1.0 streaming products. Like they're still modeled after a physical catalog. They're still organized as if you would organize albums on a shelf. They still have radio station type, uh, you know, lean back things where they just put things together. They still have human curators. I think we're going to see a very, very different sort of long-term way we consume music get created in the next couple of years that's more about me personally. Give me media and music at the point where I, you know, where I want it based on what you know about me in my day. Like, I shouldn't have to go searching for something. I should never have to type. I watch my eight-year-old interact with Alexa through Amazon Unlimited, and he has no concept of a radio station. He has no concept of an album. He knows artists and he knows songs, and then he says, play songs like that. Right? And so songs come up and within three or four songs, he tells it to stop and moves on to something else. Right, So it's not yet into a place where he gets exactly what he wants, but he's a lot closer to like going straight to the brand that matters, which is the artist or the song. And you brought up the voice piece, which is incredibly fascinating, right? That that is already driving, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20, 25% of Google search activity. Half of all American homes will have Alexa by the end of this year. Wow. And that's fundamentally changing essentially the operating system, the way that we interact with our devices and the way that we're going to organize and get information in the future. Yeah. Typing sucks, right? There's no way around saying, I mean, that's a fact. And it's inefficient and it leads to, and a lot of the way we catalog and organize information is around typing. And it's like a a funny way to put this in perspective is to think about the keyboard on your laptop. So that the keyboard, the organization of the keys on your laptop, the QWERTY keyboard. It's based on a typewriter. It's based on a typewriter. You know, so you know this story. You know why it's arranged this way. Correct. To slow type this down. It is actually, it is designed to be inefficient because typewriters that had those metal arms that would go up and they would get tangled if they were, if it was efficient. If someone was typing too fast, they would get stuck. That's right. Exactly. And so we are we are still today on the most modern, brand new, highest powered, you know, thing you can buy with a keyboard using a keyboard layout that is designed to make sure you don't tangle up metal bars on an 80 year old product. Yeah. Wild, right? <laughs> like like if that isn't evidence and proof that this is a that's a terrible interface for a human being to interact with a machine, I don't know what is. But it's all about how do you change user behavior if everyone's so used to the pretty keyboard can you, you know, change the design of, of that product so fundamentally, or do you have to just wait for the next generation of technology to leapfrog it? Yeah, usually you just leapfrog it. So yeah. how about I just talk to it? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I can talk to it. Yeah. So you're at Top, top Spin for a little over five years. That's mm-hmm. a wild ride. You ultimately acquired by Beats by Dre in 2014. Yep. And then you joined Twitter to lead up their uh, U.S. music partnerships. That's right. Tell us more about that experience. It was amazing. If Top Spin was learning how to build products on the internet and learning how to interact with the music business... Twitter was a lesson in scale and millions of people, right? And it was it was different than Yahoo because Yahoo we had millions of people, but in Twitter's case, it was you really had zeitgeists there and you had a lot of stuff going on. And so, you know, my job was to sort of show up and figure out what are we going to do with this music app that got launched that didn't work. No fault of the guys who made it, right? Twitter bought We Are Hunted. 
they had a design for a product, they put it together. The hunted designers and developers raised their hands and said, we don't think this is a good product. Twitter said, hey, let's ship it anyway and see what happens. And then they were kind of marooned with this product that was sort of cursed from the, from the beginning. So we, had, we shut that down and we went on an exploration of like, how do we give artists and people who care about music, how do we give them a primary music experience in the Twitter timeline rather than a secondary experience? And, you know, part of the goal of that was to give, get more amazing music related content for Twitter. Well, the way you're going to get more amazing content from any category, whether it's music, sports, television, whatever for Twitter is to empower those people to have better business opportunities, help them get closer to their audience, help them make more money, generate more fans, get more information about what's happening. And so a lot of stuff happened that you can read about from that time period that I'm officially not supposed to tell you about. You can read about it, right? We went on a big acquisition quest that didn't work out. Would have been a really cool acquisition, would have changed the way a lot of things work in and around music and social. Didn't happen for plenty of good adult reasons, but it was a bummer. It was, you know, it was a bad beat. Tough to take personally, right? But I'm very proud of some things that we did do. Like if you open the Twitter app today and you scroll through the timeline, you see a little button that plays audio from SoundCloud or Spotify or Apple Music. That was us. That was, you know, three people made that. And now it's used by hundreds of millions of people every day in the Twitter timeline. And I still see my timeline, you know, full of them every day. As a person who helps make things and wants people to like connect around content, like that's a pretty good little dopamine hit every now and then, right? You're feeling like, oh man, like I'm... I'm an idiot. What if I, you know, we all have that moment, especially on entrepreneurship, right? Of like, um, I blew it. I didn't get it done. To be able to open that up and watch people share that and, and see artists and media outlets and everybody sharing content and using that little player interface, it's, it feels good. That's an incredible feeling. That's yeah. All about. yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you think Twitter's doing today in the music space? And, and, you know, its competitors, how are Facebook, Instagram, YouTube approaching music? Who's doing a good job and what can they do to improve? I think everybody, not, this is not about Twitter, I think this is about everybody. I think everybody on those networks is so hyper-focused on competing with each other and creating their own walled gardens and their own internal economics and their own metrics that there is room for someone to genuinely care about distribution and packaging content and letting it move around freely and connect with fans and provide business opportunities for the content creators. There's still not yet amazing revenue share setups there. There's still a lot of hubris in the way the platforms posture to the artists and the content creators about, well, you need us, so we're not going to pay you and you're going to keep making this because you need access to your fans and we're going to keep selling them back to you. I think that that is, those are all totally fine, defensible, regular, good capitalism decisions. And until there's a reason for it not to be that way, there won't be. But I think there's opportunity for some for a different way for people to connect around that. And I think it's got to be federated. It's got to be across media types. Like I'm not interested in, I don't, I don't need a social experience for music. I don't need a social experience for skateboarding. I'm a skateboarder. Like I don't need um, a social experience for basketball. I need all of those things wrapped together in a way that I can consume and move stuff together pretty seamlessly. And that I think, you know, we're headed towards and we'll get better. Instagram by far the leader currently, like their product is the best. It's the most engaging, simplest, easiest to understand. I'd like to see a commerce business uh, get attached to Instagram. I'd like to see some kind of deeper relationship where I can go, Instagram is the is the high level for everybody. And then there is a way to move people into a much more specialized, private, you know, monetized relationship with content creators too. I think influencers would love that too. Sure. But it's tough when you have a smooth, elegant app like Instagram, not to overbloat it, right? I mean, in some ways we don't want Instagram to become what Facebook is today, which is kind of this 
broad-based internet utility with photos and music, but it's all kind of cluttered together, and there's not an easy yeah. experience for anything. Yeah, we'll see. What, we'll see what happens. You know, leadership change and all that, right? But the the way Instagram has implemented the swipe up, I think, is killer. Like the product team there has done a really great job. They've really executed well. The swipe up part could take you into a deeper experience that's in, even in another app and then you just do deep app switching and you link in between and you have a little constellation of apps that, that are for, you know, the 10% of your audience that creates 80% of the money. Like that's an easy, a swipe up is an easy way to get there. And yeah. so I feel like there's, I think there are ways to do that without cluttering the the primary Instagram experience. And I think that, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think Instagram will do that. Right almost positive they won't they don't need to they don't have economic pressure to do it but there is a there's a next level of that that creators and and influencers and people who care about content specifically in music will flock to if it if that dynamic gets right so are these the types of questions that you are attacking here at text music is that what you're investing in companies to help try to solve that's one category sure. we totally would if we saw it we would we would do it you know we invested in a company called shimmer two years ago that was sort of inverted fans make content influencers react yeah um, shimmer, yeah <laughs> and they, you know they got to a point where uh that product had some influence and people cared about it but it never kind of got over the hump and they made an entirely new product like we helped them through a pivot we went through strategy new product is really cool like i don't want to steal anybody's thunder but like it's awesome and it is directly related to i've got an audience of people who care about me i want to monetize and communicate with them in a one-to-one basis on terms i control and you know new one looks like it's my work like it's pretty great so that's one definitely one area where we're active and constantly searching you know but we might make one investment in a category like that a year we've got nine other slots in the program we'll do content creation we'll do distribution we'll do royalties discovery ticketing event security you know before the we started recording we were talking a little bit about healthcare people are like what healthcare i was like yeah like you know there's a, a whole bunch of uses for music in the treatment of alzheimer's autism depression just like uh in the eight like managing aging everybody always thinks of music as it's got to be the hottest coolest you know youth culture related uh endeavor and for the most part that's true especially on the frontline catalog side but listening to music and reacting to that and and having that communal experience is part of being human and that doesn't go away if you're 60, 70, 80 years old and combine that with what's happening in voice right now and suddenly like, oh, grandma, don't worry about it. This is my fancy f- crazy phone. Oh, you kids and your crazy phones and like, all the things you can do. Like suddenly you just put a box on the counter and the grandma talks to the box and the grandma's got access to everything she's ever loved media-wise. There's a barrier of adoption that just is really different that doesn't, you know, things that were hard, explaining your, your computer to your grandparents when you were a kid, don't exist anymore. And we're about to start having generations of grandparents who have always had computers and have always had technology. And so there's a lot of that sort of stuff that's a massive financial and, and you know, like market size opportunity. Yeah. We still live kind of in the midst of this generational divide between people who grew up in an era of old media on TV, yep. et cetera. That's right. And then the people who grew up on the internet. And that's that right. that is fundamentally changing everything about the way that we interact with media content and technology, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, like I would have never bought an iPod for my grandparents, ever, never. Like it was unfathomable, all right? But if my grandparents were alive today, I absolutely would have bought them a Sonos One speaker with Alexa on the top, and I would have configured it all for them and set it up and plugged it in and walked away, and they would have yelled and cursed, and there's a great Saturday Night Live sketch about That's that. Yeah. yeah, it's worth it's worth digging up where like the old people are yelling at Alexa, and it would have been hilarious, and it would have worked, and they'd have loved it. They'd have loved it. Yeah. One of the other things that you mentioned we were talking about right before we started the show is uh, 
that you're excited about the opportunity to make content more personalized and interactive. So yeah, these technological totally. changes bring down some of these barriers that we still experience today. One of which is the keyboard, but there's many other examples out there. Yeah, like I'm, uh, I'm super into using uh, existing videos to make new videos, and I don't mean like memes. Like I, like I mean genuinely remixing videos. Like someone makes a video and posts it online, and the next thing you know, you go replace all the dialogue, and you actually replace the action, and you take a character out of that and turn that into an AR asset, and you do something else with it. Like we're headed for a world of where the same level of remix and collaboration and collage that we've had with audio for the last 30 years or 50 years, I guess, if you want to talk about DJs in, in, in New York City and Jamaica cutting them up, we're about to have that for video in ways that people just don't understand. People think like, all right, well, I made a video. I can't change the content of the video. The video is of a, of a guy dunking a basketball. It's going to be of a guy dunking a basketball forever. And you've started to see a little bit of stuff where people are like, we'll superimpose stuff on top and they'll do an extra layer. But like, I'm talking about like, make a different person do the action, replace the human being in the video with a different human being. And suddenly it looks like you're dunking the basketball rather than LeBron, right? Like that's, a, that's coming and quick. And I think that's going to be both really interactive and really engaging and also is going to create a, like a, even more competition and like a higher bar for quality for existing sort of lean back one way video. Like it's, those things are going to be really fun and really interesting and really engaging and just sit back and watch my two hour movie is going to have a whole new thing to have to deal with. A reliable Wi-Fi connection is as vital as your wallet. With Skyrim, you won't be trapped in a cafe or wander for Wi-Fi again. For work or fun, the Solus 4G LTE Wi-Fi hotspot has you covered with fast Wi-Fi across the U.S. and in 130 countries. And with its built-in power bank, devices stay charged on the go. Get data by the day, month, or gig. No contracts. Go to skyroam.com slash techpod to save 20% off a of Solus with code techpod20. Business Insider calls it a must-have travel gadget. Visit skyroam.com slash techpod. Offer code techpod20. So as you're thinking about these big questions and working with entrepreneurs to help them harness the cultural technological shifts that are happening, uh, what's some of the advice that you give to early stage founders and entrepreneurs? Oh man, good advice or bad advice? <laughs> uh, Techstars, our job is to, is to support the company for life. Like our job is to pick people, right? Based on the team, right? We have a really public investment philosophy, team, 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 that's how it starts. Who are these people? You know what the the market they're working in matters, right? The the size of the opportunity matters. The idea that they have currently for how they solve that problem matters the least. It's on it's on our list publicly as the last thing, just to show that it's last. Like it's like, like if, if you are really talented, a bunch of people, and you've fallen in love with a problem, not a solution, but a problem. I'm gonna fix this problem, and you can demonstrably show how much financial reward there is for solving it, those businesses don't have a hard time attracting capital. Like there's plenty of capital for that, right? What they're where you have a hard time attracting capital is when you're too in love with the solution or you're you're trying to solve something that just isn't a problem. Right. Like the other day, some entrepreneurs pitched me a business and it was actually like really useful. Like, I, I, and I'll be vague about it so as not to like use someone's pitch on the on the podcast. But they pitched me something and they were like, and the reason we want to we we pitch you this is because we think people should put their phones down at shows. And I was like, people aren't going to put their phones down at shows. They love having their phone. Like if anything's going to happen, more people are going to have their phones up at shows. And the thing you're pitching me, by the way, is like awesome and should encourage people to do. And more people should have their phones. Like it was actually like inverted in the way they were talking about it. So they had a solution to a problem 
they had the problem misidentified. And when pointed out to them, they were like, oh, well, yeah, of course it would do that. And you're like, well, that's a that's actually a real problem for people. So digging into and understanding what the real problems are for particular categories or for humans or for fans of content, like that's the most important part. And weirdly, like most people who are new to entrepreneurship realize last, like most people start with a solution and they they're fall in love with their solution and they're going to go raise money for their, for their product. Sure. What are some of the other mistakes that you see early entrepreneurs uh, encounter? Well, okay. So early ones that are, that are easy um, when you're pitching your business is not giving me the other metric. So a lot of times people will say, well, we've done $4 million through our business so far. And I'll say, how much of that is revenue? (laughs) Right. And then they'll be like, Oh, um, you know, I don't know. And it's like, you're not going to hide your margin percentage to me. Like, it's not going to work. Like, are you, and you're, and just talk to me in terms of revenue. How much money is revenue for you? Right. Not understanding the difference between GMV and revenue is like bad. That's a bad sign, but it applies to any vanity metric in general, right? I get, you get to pitch. We built this consumer app and it's got 2 million downloads. Cool. How many daily actives? How many monthly actives? What's the, what's, you know, day seven retention look like? Like none of these things are mysteries. And if you, if you don't tell me, of course I'm going to ask you. Yeah. You got to be in front of that. And now I'm asking you and you're telling me something, you're giving me a, an answer that's not, that's not very impressive, right? Better would be, Hey, we launched this mobile app. User numbers are effectively zero, but we're increasing the ratio between DAUs and installs. Right? We've gone from 30% active on the daily to 45% active, and we think we can get it to 55, and let me show you why. Like, That's much more compelling. Absolute numbers are the same. That's right. Totally the same. But it, but it belies like an understanding of how your business works and how you have to manage it and operate it that's yeah. really important. Yeah. And just gives someone on the investing side tons of comfort. Sure. So even beyond those ways of framing and pitching the business, what are the, the things that they need to focus on when building the business? Well, yeah, I, I, that, and that's what I mean. Like, I don't sure. mean do that so you can pitch your business better. Uh, I mean, I mean, like it. actually manage your business. That's right. Applying it. And yeah. everybody gets gets seduced by that big number. Go looking for the big number and talk about it. Right. If internally you are excited about your big number, you are lying to yourself. Stop lying to yourself. Every entrepreneur does it. There's something every entrepreneur, no matter what stage of their business they're in, there's something they know they're lying to themselves about, and they might be lying to their teams about it, and they just need to just come clean and go, look, this is this number that we tout is not as cool as, it, as we say it is. Yeah. Right? Totally. And then this number really matters and is not as high as it should be. And then when you can have that conversation with people, they can help you. Right? Like if, if I invest in a company and I've got 10 companies in our office and they're all working away, working away. And I walk into the office and I walk by the first table of the first company and I'm like, Hey guys, what's up? How's everything going? And they're like, it's great. Super awesome. Like we're crushing it. Like, you know, all the regular bullshit. Right. <laughs> um, my reaction is going to be cool. High five. And I'm going to walk on to the next table and at that table I'll be like, what's up with you guys? Everything's fucked. It's on work. It's disaster. It's on fire. And then my reaction is going to be, how how can I help? And so suddenly I'm helping the company that has the same exact problems as the first company. First company has same problems, same messes, same like disastrous things happening. But because they're lying to themselves about the state of the business, they're not getting help. If you tell somebody something is great, it becomes very hard to then immediately ask for their help and get an earnest, really like full effort out of that, out of that person who can help you. 
But if you come and say, hey, I need some help. These are these things are good, but this is broken. People will help you. Yeah, 100%. What does the future hold for the music space? Oh, man. If I knew that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't like. I think we're gonna less typing, yeah. more talking, more collaborating, like more remixing, more collaborating, faster turnaround product times, like like the speed of of campaigns, the speed of product creation, the marketing cycles, the time of things uh, take to get released, the the setup, the build up, all of that collapses. I think uh, live events become much more personalized to the user. I think people. Your identity starts to become part of how you interact with the show, where you sit, what merch you could see, what your offers are, how you buy your tickets, how you get access to the show. All of that stuff changes dramatically. And I also think that just more consumption, right? And not necessarily in a way of like, I've got to be an artist, write a song, recruit engineer, you know, recruit an engineer, recruit some musicians, get somebody else, put it together, create a product. I think that you'll see a lot of people start making elements and then software will reassemble those elements for the user when the user wants and needs them. So for example, like we have a company in our portfolio called Endel based in Berlin, makes procedurally generated music to help you relax, focus, or fall asleep. And it's really what that company is, is a controller for taking in your biometric data and your preference data and your calendar and your steps and all of where you've been everywhere and, and the time of day that you're asking for help and the, your, like even circadian rhythms, like when's the sunset, when's it come up? You know, where, where are you in the season of the year and create media for you at the point that you need it and then throw it away after you're done with it. Right. So purpose built custom media personalized to you for the purpose of it is Tuesday night at 1130 p.m. You are jet lagged because you just landed in L.A. from New York. Go to sleep that you may never need that exact piece of media again. But that brain in the cloud knows how to make that media for you. That'll change the way we watch television. It'll change the way we listen to news. It'll change the way we listen to music, right? The outputs of that kind of thinking could be all kinds of different media types. It doesn't have to be like go to sleep music. More personalized curation. Everything. Yeah. Right? Wow. Like if you're, if you're currently making a living building playlists and you think that you are driving culture, you might be, but your days are numbered. Like that's software's job. Yeah. There's no way an individual curator can pick a piece of content for me as good as a piece of software can. It's just not, it's just an unwinnable battle. What are some of these things that you believe that other people might think is totally crazy? Because I'm wondering if that is a bit of a contrarian view. I don't think so. Like, I'm, I mean, and I... People are on board with that. Now we've got I mean, someone's things. listening going, oh, that's a veiled diss at Apple and Spotify's curation teams. It's not. Like, yeah. they're really talented people who work there. And I talk to them all the time and I'm, I love them and they do a good job. But even they know if you get them in a moment of honesty that like software is going to win here. I think that, I mean, look, my investments in AI generated music, Amber Music, Pop Gun, right? Even Pacemaker to a lesser extent has some cool, really cool stuff in it. Like music, anything that is below the line in music, recording studio, tune the instruments, play the instruments, no music theory, mix tracks, engineer tracks, make things sound right. All of that goes away. And the, and the only thing that's left is, are you compelling? Can you connect to other people? And can you share awesome ideas? That's it. Yeah. Like, that's the future of music. Very cool. Well, one question I ask everyone on the show is, uh, if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, knowing everything you know, what would you do? Oh, man. If I were starting a business in music right now, I, I don't know. Like, I can't, actually can't answer that because it is my job to go invest in the other ones. And part of why I didn't do it is because I made a long list of companies I would start and products I would make. And I, and I had some good ones in there, right? It's ones that I'm still kind of noodling in the back of my head. 
but there was nothing on my list of like, I have to do this. And that's like, you, ha- you have to get to the threshold of, I have to do this for you to endure the pain and suffering and, and ups and downs and, and just like the war that is building your own company from 100%. scratch. Yeah. And, and I didn't have anything that met that threshold. And so I would like to have more money to deploy. I would like to have more resources to go invest in people because I think there's like, you know, half our investments are outside the U.S., half are inside. I think most of the opportunities outside the U.S. And, you know, been traveling around the world for two years, like talent is evenly distributed. Opportunity is not evenly distributed, but talent is evenly distributed on the planet. And there are lots of places on the planet where amazing cultural, musical, entertainment style, technical businesses are going to get built. And I like, you know, framing it in a way that answers your question. I would like to have more capital to put into those companies. Like, I think it's a really awesome time for all that stuff. Fantastic. Well, Bob, where can people find out more about you and more about Techstars Music? Uh, Techstars Music is really easy. Techstarsmusic.com. I am too accessible. I'm the best thing to do is find me on Twitter. I'm at Bob Moz. B-O-B-M-O-Z. I'm Bob Moz everywhere. Don't come at me on Instagram. That's <laughs> that's private. It's me and my kids goofing around. But I'm happy to engage with anybody on on Twitter about it. My email is the same as my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm accessible. Right on. Well, this has been so much fun. I love the way that you're thinking about how technology is impacting the future of music and working with entrepreneurs empowering them, encouraging them to change that because there is so much opportunity. There's so much that music impacts beyond our broader culture and the way that we interact with one another and other types of content that is, it's incredible. So well, thanks for sharing this. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a cool show. Like just a really cool collection of people trying to be smart and be helpful to people. Like cool. Congrats on having an awesome collection of shows. Thank you. That's what it's all about. So appreciate it. Right on. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.